Welcome, uh, my name is Scott. I am the senior pastor at New Valley Church. It's awesome to be with you tonight. And it really is a joy to be, to be with you. I'm not able to be here every week, but when I am, I just want to let you know how much uh, I love you guys and pray for you and I'm excited about what's happening downtown. And it really, every time I get to be with you, I was here last week as well, but the chance I get to be with you and preach particularly, it's just a, it's just a joy. You're, uh, you're the apple of my eye, I love you. I'm just, I'm just so glad to be with you tonight. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 90. So if you've got a Bible, would you turn there tonight? Uh, I've loved this series. You know, uh, when I was in seminary, I noticed that all the like older professors and the godliest examples I knew in life uh, just bathed their hearts and life in the Psalms. And the older I've gotten, uh, the more and more the Psalms have become sort of this regular part of my life. And, and our desire in this series really has been that as a church, we would all be uh, beginning the rhythm. So we're calling this gospel rhythm of having the Psalms become this regular, repeated thing in your life. Uh, just because the Psalms are so critical, I think, for, for any believer. It was, the, it was so impactful for Jesus. He quoted the Psalms more than any other book in the Bible, and uh, constantly they're alluding to him, and so they're the heartbeat of the Bible. So let's, let's look at Psalm 90, a unique psalm, because it's written uh, to... Sorry, apparently I'm not on. Um, it was written by Moses... <laughs> So Andy, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do right now. Okay. Okay. Anyway, uh, Psalm 90 is written by Moses, and that makes it unique. As you know, you know King David wrote uh, more than half the Psalms, and the other uh, were written by a lot of different authors. But this one was written by Moses, interestingly, and I think it ties in some different themes that we might not otherwise see from different authors. So let's read together Psalm 90. Uh, it's found in your bulletin as well. Moses writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we're brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. I, uh, I recently had outpatient surgery, um, nothing big, but, uh, you know, it's always kind of nerve-wracking a little bit, and um, whenever you do surgery of any kind, they have you do sort of 
pre-op stuff. So I had to go to the hospital and do some blood work, and then they wanted to do an EKG as well. And so I, I am kind of a control freak. I didn't want to spend my whole day at the hospital waiting around for these tests. So I called ahead of time and said, what will be the quickest way I can get in and out of this place and this testing? And they said, well, on Fridays, when we open, that's the quickest time. So I said, perfect, I will be there at 7 a.m. And so I got there at 6.45, I got there, and I, I got in quickly. And so they drew my blood, and, and then I thought, great, I'm almost done. They said, all right, next EKG. This guy came back and said, all right, let's go back here, young man. Let's take your EKG. And I'm thinking, this could be a zip, no problem. I'm fine, I'm healthy and this won't be a problem at all. So I get in there and this guy begins to administer the EKG. If you've never had one, they hook you up to all these dials and it doesn't take long at all. They, they just kind of flip the switch on this computer and they, they run a test to take a picture of your heart essentially. And as he's doing my EKG test, he begins to mumble to himself. You don't, you don't want that, right? And he begins to say, what? No, no, this can't be, this can't be. Oh, no, he's too healthy. And he's like, at first, I'm like, all right, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to, all right. And then he goes, wait, you know what? Wait a minute. Something's wrong here. I'm going to get another EKG machine, and I'll be right back. So I'm sitting there all alone in this hospital room going, what is going on? So he drags this new machine back in, hooks me all up, and he does another EKG. And as he does, he begins to mumble again, going, no, 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 this can't. And he goes, I go, all right, what is going on, man? What's happening? And he said, uh, have you ever had a heart attack? I said, no, I've not had a heart attack. And he said, both of these EKG machines have said that you've had a heart attack in the recent past. So I had not had a heart attack, but in that moment, I was having a heart attack out of COVID. I was so like freaked out. And I go, well, what do I do? Do I go check myself in the hospital right now? I mean, what am I supposed to do? He's like, no, be calm. Just go home and call your doctor. I'm like, yeah, right, be calm. So I go to my car. I call a friend who's an ER doc. I get him on the phone quickly, luckily, and I said, this dude just told me I've had a heart attack. I know I've not had a heart attack. It's like, send me the EKG right away. So I do, I fax it over, or I take a picture on my phone, send it over to him, and he said, you didn't have a heart attack. But, you know, with some family history I have, he said, I want you to go to a cardiologist. So get this checked out. Well, it took two weeks to get in to see the cardiologist. In the span of that time, by the way, cardiologist checked me out, stress test, everything, it's all great. My heart's fine, everything's fine. Surgery's over, et cetera, et cetera. So it's all good. But that two week waiting period was pretty tough, I gotta be honest. I kept thinking, well, what if that my doctor friend is wrong? And what if the EKG, I mean, there's two of them. Two of them said I had a heart attack. And, and I did have that slight chest pain while watching the Cardinals versus Green Bay Packers after eating a lot of chili. And, you know, and so maybe, maybe that was a heart attack and not just, you know, indigestion, et cetera, et cetera. The thing that I saw and relearned in that moment is kind of, in essence, a little bit of what Moses is saying here. It's this. Our lives are incredibly unpredictable. And... We like to push it away, especially if people who are younger, this idea that they're not. But your life is incredibly unpredictable, and all of us are one phone call away from having everything changed. One phone call of a loved one, one phone call about a loved one of yours can rocket your world and change everything. One phone call about you, you know, you now have this new diagnosis. A doctor says something about you or over you, and next thing you know, your whole life is upside down and changed forever. We are feeble, we are weak, we are frail. And Moses, in this passage, what he's doing is contrasting the ephemeral and the, and the, and the light side of our life with the eternity of, what, of God's life. He's contrasting the brevity of our life with the eternity of God's life. And then he's saying, in light of that, I want you to contrast the two, your brevity, God's eternity, and I want you to be wise and to number your days in light of that and live a wise life. 
And there's a main point tonight, and it's this. Wisdom equals prioritizing your life in light of God's, your brevity and God's eternity. Verse 12 is the heart of this passage. Where he says, teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And so what he's saying, if you want to be wise, if you really want to be wise, learn to prioritize your life in light of your brevity and God's eternity. And in so doing, you'll live a wise life. This is what Moses is saying. And tonight, three things about that. First, our God is our eternal home. Verses 1 through 4. Second, this life is a short story. We don't believe it, but it is. Verses 3 through 11. And then prioritize living, verses 12 through 17. First, our God, an eternal home. Verses 1 through 2. We just read it. I'm going to read it again. It says this. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses says, and uses this beautiful language of a home, of a dwelling place. He says, you've been our dwelling place for all generations. And I want you to think of the emotion and the sort of just this deep, deep sense of emotion maybe that the word home brings you. You know, it does for me. When I think of home, when I think of not just a house, but a home, it just evokes this deep, deep longing inside of me. And although certainly Moses is, is trying to get that, that start of our brain working, He's not being poetic as such. In fact, what he's doing is describing Israel's history up to this point. Moses is writing this, right? The guy who wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And what he's doing is basically saying, look, from the very beginning of Israel's history until now, we've been a homeless nomadic people, and it's true. And so throughout all of our generations, you have been our dwelling place. You alone have been our home. You alone have been our refuge. Because up to this point, look, I mean, the very beginning history of, of Israel was what? A guy named Abraham who had a home, but as soon as God called him and said, you will be the father of a great nation, even though he had no children, he said what? Follow me. And God, it said that Abraham believed in God, and God reckoned that as righteousness to him. And he followed him. Abraham, the first Jew, the first Israelite, had to leave home, had to leave the security, had to leave his dwelling place. He, his whole household, picked up, got in tents, walked away to a new land, they're supposed to be flowing with milk and honey and so forth. But then what happens in Israel's history? Well, the descendants of Abraham, his sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, they, because of a famine, end up in Egypt searching for food, as you know, to seek help from Joseph. But then Pharaoh forgot about Joseph. They were enslaved for generation after generation after generation. So enslavement, displacement. And then now they're finally freed from enslavement. You know, not just metaphorical enslavement, but literal enslavement. And then Moses frees them. And then once they go out into the desert, what happens? They have to wander around for 40 years. So when Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations, what he's saying is this is a reality for us. This is, as the people of God, this has been true for us. You have had to be our home because we've not had a place to call home in our life. Now, I think, though, when Moses is talking about home and a dwelling place, and he's calling us to be putting our hope there, opposed to everything else that tempts us. So we all want a security, we all want a dwelling place, we all want a home, a place to have this deep kind of shalom and peace. And I think in essence, maybe what Moses has in mind is Genesis 1 and 2, again, which he was the author of. Whereas you see in Genesis, what we find there is this description of home unlike we've ever experienced since. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, you have creation, of course, 
And when it's, when it's all done, you have a people, Adam and Eve, who are living in complete shalom, peace, wholeness with their God. They walk with him in the cool of the evening. They have a perfect relationship with him. And I, I just want you to think of how beautiful that would be. To have a perfect relationship with God. When you have a conversation with him, there's no doubt that he's hearing your voice. When you pray, when you speak with him, when you hear his voice, you, you don't have to go, did I really hear that right? You know what I mean? Did I really read that? Is that really true? You would hear his voice audibly. You would speak to the Lord face to face. Secondly, they had peace with themselves. I want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like to live your life in such a way where you have no shame during the day at all. No shame whatsoever. No self-loathing. Can you imagine? No, at no point during the day where you say, you're such an idiot. I can't believe you did that again. Or I'm so ashamed of my sin. I'm so sick of the ways that I keep returning to my pet sins. I'm so sick of the fact that I can't be a patient person even though I've tried and tried and tried or whatever your issue is. Like, can you imagine what it would be like to have shalom within yourself? To not be at war within yourself? No sin, no shame, no self-loathing. Can you imagine? This was their experience. This is what home was like for them. They had peace with God. They had peace with themselves. They had peace with one another. It's the only perfect marriage, Adam and Eve, prior to the fall. I mean, deep, profound love and intimacy. Unlike, they were naked and unashamed before one another. How beautiful. And then, finally, they had peace with the earth. Currently, look at the environment. Look at all the ways in which we're at war with the earth and the way, you know, like natural disasters and all the difficulties we have. We work. We're called to work the land and guard the earth. And yet there's thistles and there's weeds and toil. And, and you're called to work. That was a creation mandate, not a part of the fall. We're called to work and have a vocation and have a work. But at the same time, it's difficult, is it not? I mean, in light of the fall, it's so hard. So all that to say, I think, as Moses is saying, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations. There's that. But when he talks about home, dwelling place, there's an echo in a sense of like saying, there was a time when we had a dwelling place. There was a time when we had a home. There was Rivendell. <laughs> there was the Shire. And it was beautiful. It was glorious. Uninterrupted. And yet, we get displaced. We get kicked out. So intensely in Genesis 3, if you read it, it's pretty amazing. It almost sounds like a fairy tale. We're removed after the fall from the garden, Adam and Eve are. And there's, there's literally an angel posted to keep them from coming back in, right? It says, you know, look what they've done. We're going to remove them. And in case they might come back, in essence, like there's literally a, as if there's a door to get back in the garden. You know, perhaps there is. There's this angel posted to guard against it. We've been kicked out. We've been removed. And yet there's this echo that we can't escape. And this longing, this deep, deep longing that we have for home. Back to the garden. Back to the place and the time when all was right. In light of that fact, in light of that deep longing, in light of this fact that we're created for creation, created for shalom, blessed and given the benediction of God in creation, in light of that, I think we end up, though, longing and looking for fulfillment, a home, a dwelling place, a sense of shalom or security. We're looking in all the wrong places, are we not? And we keep looking in all these different places that can't possibly provide what we're looking for, a dwelling place, a home. We look, we look to money. It's just one example among many. And it's not money. It's like money. We know money is not going to actually provide security. But we think in a way it can lead to security, right? Money is not security. But if I have enough of it, I could rest and I could finally have a home. I could finally, finally kind of breathe 
and be at peace. But it never works. The next point I want us to see is God is our eternal home. And that's what he's saying. Look, God is eternal. He never quits. His, for him, verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past or as a watch in the night. God stands outside of time, and, you know, we've discovered with Einstein that time is relative, right? But for God, it truly is. Like, he's the creator of time. He's not subject to time. And so there's a sense in which, you know, for God, everything is, is, is like, leveled out. He, he alone is worthy of us being, putting our hope and our trust in him as our dwelling place. Next thing I want us to see that, that Moses is contrasting is this life is a short story. Don't you love a great short story? Flannery O'Connor. That happy, happy author. <laughs> if you've read any of her stuff, I mean, it's the darkest stuff you can possibly imagine. It's deeply, deeply uh, soulful uh, lady in the South. She was a strong Christian Catholic. She's just really profound faith and writer, and yet wrote these dark, dark stories. When, when we think of our lives, though, particularly when you're young, if you're in your 20s, you, you have a tendency to think of your life not as a short story, but more of as this Tolkien-level novel, maybe a, a three-part, I mean, this huge trilogy of a life, you know, just thousands upon thousands of pages. But Moses is saying, the older you get, the more you realize your, your story is not this huge trilogy. In fact, it's a short story. It's very, very brief. Psalm 90, verse 3 Moses writes, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, back to dust. We're created for life. We're not created for death, but we now return to dust. Moses says that our lives are like a flood in this passage. It says it's like a dream. It's just, it's just out there. It's ephemeral. It's gone. As soon as you wake up, you kind of forget it. It's gone. It's passed over. We're like grass that springs up in the morning, but by evening, it's all faded and it's beginning to, to pass away. This is what he's saying our life is like. He says, interestingly, you know, you live about 70 years, 80 if you're lucky, if you have strength. And what's interesting, in the U.S., the life expectancy right now is 78.8-ish years. Right at what Moses said. So 70, 80 years if you're lucky. But God says, or Moses says, God is eternal. Humanity is ephemeral. But what he's saying in this phrase, return to dust, O sons of men. Again, he's pointing us back to Genesis. Again, he's the author of this book, both. And what he's saying, because remember in Genesis, in Genesis 3.19, he writes this, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till uh, you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God said this to Adam and Eve after the fall in Genesis 3. They were given one rule and one rule only. Were they not in the garden? And that one rule was to not take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we don't know what that was. We always say it was an apple, but we have no idea what it actually was. Just one rule. And I kind of think, honestly, it could have been anything. It could have been like, don't jump over this line or skip over this, you know, uh, flowing stream or whatever. Whatever it could have been. Because basically, the heart behind this rule, in my opinion, was this. That will you allow me to be sovereign or will you enthrone yourself as the king? God is saying, look, I only have one rule, and it all boils down to this. Will you trust me to be the king of your life, or will you enthrone yourself as king and queen of your own life? Adam and Eve trusted for we don't know how long, but at some point they believed the serpent, the liar, who came along and said, look, God's holding out on you. He's keeping, he's keeping this from you. And God had promised them, if you ever eat of this, if you ever break my law by enthroning yourself as king and not trusting my kingdom, then what's going to happen is you're going to die. 
Satan came along though and said, surely you're not going to die. You're going to live. You're finally going to know good from evil. You're going to have knowledge you didn't have. You're going to have experiences you never had before. Now you'll be living the good life. But instead, everything that we see is broken and fallen and horrible in the world began to happen right there. You say, yeah, but they didn't die. But they began to die. Death began in that moment. Everything was undone in that moment. And they were beginning to return to dust. Genesis 1 and 2. You're created in God's image. You are not meant to live this way. You are not meant to die. You are not meant to suffer the toil and the trouble and all that Moses is describing in this passage. We were not created for this. But in light of the fall... We have now lived in the fallen place. We've now come to this place where we are broken, fallen, and our experience is so broken and profound. And so there is now left within us an echo and a faint memory, if you will, of this home for which we were created. And we're left outside. And we're continuing to, to get back into this home and this place. And we keep looking to the wrong things, the wrong people, the wrong places to find a dwelling place. What are you looking to? I mean, you knew this is where I'm driving. <laughs> what are you looking to as your dwelling place? Your life is so short. It is. And God's life is eternal. What are you looking to other than God? In a moment, you might look to God, but let's face it, all of us, myself, Greg, the other pastors here, all of us, we're so tempted to look at other things as our dwelling place, our other securities, all these other things. What are the things that are most tempting you? Maybe it's a literal home. Maybe you're saying to yourself, if I ever get a home, it'll be so amazing. You know, I'm renting or I'm a student and I can't wait to get my own place. And when I do, it'll be a home. It'll be a dwelling place. It'll be a sense of security. Well, you get it. You finally you know, get a down payment and you buy a home. And you should. You should absolutely buy a home. It's an amazing investment. Do it someday. But once you get your home, you'll move in and you'll be like, you know what? This place stinks. It won't be great until we have a new kitchen and it needs a new bathroom, right? I mean, you're about to experience this, man. Like, so you'll dump a bunch of money and you'll create a new bathroom and a new kitchen. You'll hire Rob. It'll be incredible. And then it won't be enough, though. Now you'll have kids, and the place will be packed with little kids, and it'll be chaos. And you'll say, well, when the kids leave, then it'll finally be peaceful around here, and we'll have shalom and so forth. But then that doesn't work. So now you're older, and you have enough money, so you buy a second home. You see, you just it never works. Hmm. What are you looking to? There's something, there's some idea, there's something that we're always, always fleeing and running after. Our life compared with God's eternity and what we're meant for is a short story. It's over like a dream. And so now Moses is calling us to do the math and to live wisely. Prioritize our living, verses 12 through 17. In verse 12, he says this, So teach us to number our days that we may gain or we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses is saying there's a correlation between numbering your days and gaining a heart of wisdom. And so this is what I want to talk about for the next few minutes. Uh, the other day, my in-laws are visiting uh, in, in town. They're 83 and 80 years old. They live in Asheville, North Carolina. They're some of the sweetest people that have ever lived. They've been married 61 years. Um, I mean, that's amazing, is it not? They leave tomorrow to go back home. 61 years. Their health has failed so much, we literally took our bed out of our bedroom, our, our mattress and our box springs, and moved them down to the living room because they can't walk upstairs. 
And uh, so they've been here with us for the last two weeks. We are sleeping on arrow bed mattresses in our own, our, our bedroom's just a mess. It's like two different arrow mattresses, it's crazy, and there's stuff that's scattered everywhere. So they're downstairs, but in the morning as we go to work and school, we have to creep past them. We see them there cuddled up in their, uh, in their little makeshift bed in our living room. I mean, it's horrible for them. It's, it's interesting for us. And so we, we pass by each morning, and I see them there snuggled up together. And the other day, as I'm studying Psalm 90, and I'm thinking to myself, teach us to number our days, O Lord. They've been married 61 years, you know? And I thought, that's a lot of days. I wonder what the days are. So I teach us to number our days, O Lord. So I got out my calculator. I'm like, how many days is it that they've been snuggling together in bed? And they're so romantic still. 365 days times 61 is 22,265 days of snuggling. <laughs> Being husband and wife, being one flesh, they love each other so much and they have this great relationship. But like, can you imagine 22,000 days? Can you, I mean, that's hard to get through your mind around, but here's the thing, because I talk to them all the time. When you ask them, has it seemed like 22,000 days to you or has it seemed like a dream? Has it seemed like grass springing up in the morning and gone by night? And they say, oh, it's been so fast. It's been a blink. You know, I was asking them about it this week and just saying, like, what was it like? And they're like, I got, we, you know, I met her at Bible camp when I was 18 and she was 16. It's like, ah, horrible. But it's true. And then he waited until she was 18 and they got married. And then he got in the military and, and they go off and he goes off to the Navy and they moved to San Diego. And then they started their career in having kids. And he said it was over like that. And we were empty nesters. And then I retired from being an accountant. And then we moved to Asheville, North Carolina to retire. And it's just been over like a blink. It's been gone. Where did it all go? And the younger you are, I mean, when you're really young, you, life just goes by so slowly. It seems so methodical and so slow. I mean, think about it. When you're a little kid, the distance in the, of time between Christmases and your birthday is just so long, right? It would seem like eons of time, not a year between, you know, your eight-year-old Christmas and your nine-year-old Christmas would just be forever. Your eight, nine-year-old birthday and your ten-year-old birthday would just go forever. And now, at my age, I am, feel like as soon as I'm dragging down the Christmas lights off of our house, it feels like I'm turning around and just getting them back out in the garage and throwing them back up. It just feels like it's going by like this. It's so fast. Moses is telling us, life is brief. It goes by so quick. When we moved here to Plant New Valley, it's 12 years ago, I had a five-year-old boy, he's my oldest. I had a three-year-old boy, and I had a two-year-old boy. I now have an 18-year-old son who's about to graduate from high school. And many of you have five-year-olds or younger, and you think it feels like I have so much time. I plead with you, don't put anything off you want to do with your children. It goes by in the blink of an eye. And everyone says that to you, but you don't believe it, but it's so true. My son, my firstborn, is about to go off far, far away to Downtown Tempe, like four miles from our house. Like, Moses says this, wisdom equals prioritizing our days in light of life's brevity and God's eternity. How will you do that? Have you ever stopped to take your life, 78, according to the U.S., you know, we have 78.8 years. Take your life and subtract it from 78.8. That's what you have. Moses says there's great wisdom that some of you passed that. Good for you. You, you did it. You made it. If you've passed 80, you did it. Good job. Perhaps. Probably not. <laughs> but for the rest of us, you do the subtraction and you say to yourself, 
Boy, that seems like a long time perhaps to you. But what he says is this. As you do the subtraction, as you do the math, what you're going to find is this. There's great wisdom. And in light of this passage, he brings up three things, I think, that are super important as we think about living our life wisely and prioritizing our life. And the first thing I think he points us to is this. Long for God's coming kingdom. Grow in your longing for God's coming kingdom. It says in verse 13, return, O Lord. How long? Have, have pity on your servants. Return. Now, contextually, Moses is not talking about the return of Christ or the ushering in the consummation of the kingdom the way that we think of. He's not. But we live in the redemption story of Jesus where we know that Jesus Christ came, Jesus Christ lived, he died, he rose from the dead, and we wait for his coming kingdom. And the reason we wait and we long for that is this. When he comes, it will be the consummation of everything that we're missing and longing for in Genesis 1 and 2. Everything that I just talked about that they experienced, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 1 and 2, will come to pass and enter into fullness when Jesus Christ returns. That is what Revelation 21 is all about. New heavens, new earth, Jesus returned, your renewed body. You will become the person you were meant to be if the fall never took place. And then ushered in, you will have peace with God, peace with yourself, peace with other people, and peace with the earth for all of eternity with Jesus as your king. That's good news. That should be the hope that propels us to, to wise living. And until you begin to long for this consummation of Jesus' kingdom, you won't prioritize your life around anything that's godly or meaningful. Second, seek the Lord while you can. Psalm 90 verse 14, it says this, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. That word steadfast love means covenantal love, the hesed of God, his covenantal love towards us, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice. And I kind of have this imagery of, in my mind of like Moses is saying, like, may we awake in the morning seeking the Lord, right, meeting us here in our presence. And then out of meeting him in the morning, may we ex have that experience of seeking him and then live joyfully our lives before him. It's our calling. And yet, my fear for so many people today is this, and I used to be like this so much, is I'll put seeking the Lord off for some other time in my life. And I want, I want to encourage you to seek the Lord while you can. Because life is so short. And what Moses is warning us is, you think you have all these years, you don't know what you have. Your life may be required of you today. You have today to seek Him. And what Moses is saying, do the math, think about it. Your life is short. God's life is eternal. And his life is amazing. Our life is difficult and short. And he's saying, so invest. Invest in proper things. Don't invest in things that aren't going to last. Instead, invest in his kingdom, in his coming kingdom. Invest in him. Seek him. Make him the priority of your life, above all things. And finally, the third point is this. Get to work, which is an interesting point. Verse 17 says this, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You kind of would think that Moses is saying, look, this life is short. This life is difficult. It's, it's over like that. It's like a dream. It's like grass that springs up in the morning and gone later in the evening. So in light of that, just be spiritual. Just isolate from everybody. It's all going to burn anyway. Let it go to hell. It doesn't matter. You think that's kind of would be the conclusion, but it's not what he says. Martin Luther was once asked, if you were to die today, what would you, if you knew you were going to die tonight, what would you do today? And he said, plant a tree. <laughs> and I think what Luther meant by that is, I would be about 
gardening the earth that God has given me. I'd be about working in God's garden. And what I want us to consider is this. In light of this, in light of the brevity of our life, and in light of the eternity of God's life, Moses does not say, hey, so let it just burn. Instead, he says quite the opposite. Then get to work in the mission that God has given us, in gardening the good earth that God has given us, in reflecting his coming kingdom. And there's just so much more we can talk about that. I mean, we could, we could do weeks upon weeks of sermon series on just that idea alone about what that means for our vocation and our calling and our life. Good news is it doesn't mean you have to quit your job and become a pastor to, to fulfill this. Right now, right where you are, seek the Lord while you can. And get to work. What does that look like? It means in just small, even tangible, just really small but important ways. Demonstrating the kingdom of God and the realities of his coming kingdom. Showing joy to our neighbors. Loving our neighbors. Going to the Coronado uh, House Festival and, like, and loving people with intention and like carefully thinking about our neighborhoods and our city and the country in which we live and live in and the needs of the poor and reflecting God's coming kingdom. Giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, visiting the afflicted and people in prison and going to the hospital and just caring for people in our context. This is so critical in the mission of God and then pointing to the reality of the hope that we have and, and, and pointing people to the, the, the hope that we have and that Jesus will bring consummation of his kingdom to all things. Now, a brief quote. Um, we're involved in a ministry called Surge, Surge School, and it's this incredible training uh, ministry. I highly recommended it for all of us. Um, I've been through it several times. It's a great deal of reading and just thought about the Bible and, and our calling and so forth. Close with this quote. This means that one of the central liturgical tasks of the church is to hold the reality of God and his new kingdom before the eyes of our neighbors. In the welcome we extend, our purpose is not only to heal the loneliness of ourselves and of our brothers and sisters in the church, but also to bear God's hospitality to our neighbors. Get to work. Be seeking the Lord. And long for his coming kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you and we thank you for your word through our brother Moses. And the wisdom that he's given us to seek you while we can through Jesus. To number our days correctly. To see the brevity of our life and the eternity of your life. And then to say, Father, help me realign my priorities. Help me to get things right, to not spend time in my life on things that don't matter, but to focus my heart's attention to who you are. And Father, we thank you that because of Jesus, we can have favor with you and that we, we can be let back in, guaranteed passage back into the garden. Because we know that in spite of the one man's sin, that through Jesus, the one man's righteousness, we can be let back in. We can enter back into the fullness of the garden, enter back into the shalom that you promised, to a dwelling place, to a home. We thank you for Jesus, who is our home, who is our dwelling place throughout all generations. In his name we pray. Amen.